Welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose, and I am your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode, we try to really overthink a possible tomorrow. How would it work? What would it look like? Who lives? Who dies? Who winds up with a closet full of robots? We always start with a trip to the future, a little bit of fiction to set the mood and let you know what future we're headed towards. Then we come back to today to talk with real experts about how that future might really go down. Got it? Great. Let's start this episode in the year 2034. Hey, did you see this video? No, what is it? Hang on, let me start from the beginning. No, I've never been to an Outback Steakhouse. Well, that really looks like you. Yeah, it does. But that's not me. Weird. Hey, Mom. No, I know. No, it's not me. Where'd you even see the video? Yeah, no, it's not me, Mom. I know, but it's not. I don't really know what to tell you. Okay. Love you too. Bye. <sighs> Jesus Christ. I mean, it really looks like you. Thanks. Hello? Oh, no, sorry, you're mistaken. That's not me. No, no, I know. No. No, I know. But it's not. No, thank you. Who is that? The local news. They think it's me. I mean, it really looks like you. Can you play it again? God, I know who did this. Give me my phone. Brian, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, it does look like me. No, I'm not impressed. Do you know the news just called me? Take it down. Brian, this is not funny. Take it down. No, not for a date. Take it down. Come on. Fine, if you take it down, I'll go on another date with you. Just take it down. Okay, bye. Um, what? Do you remember that weird computer art guy I dated? He figured out how to make videos of people with computer graphics and their Facebook photos. So he basically just blackmailed you into another date? I guess. What makes you think he won't do the same thing again? I don't know. Okay, so this is a future in which anybody can make a video of you doing anything that they want. They just give the system some photos of you and say, hey, make a video of Rose dancing in the middle of Times Square, or whatever it is. Just as a quick word to anybody who might be listening with kids. 
This first half of this episode is totally kid-friendly, but after the ad break, we get into some adult stuff involving sex and porn. I will warn you again when we get there, but just as an FYI, in case you're doing dishes and you don't think you're going to get to that pause button in about 15, 20 minutes. This first part is totally fine, though, so don't go yet. Okay, so we're talking about video that anybody can generate, and we're going to call it generative video in this episode. That's not really a technical term, but it kind of encompasses what we're talking about. Now, this might seem impossible, but it's not. Recently, an MIT researcher gave a talk about an AI system that could generate realistic videos of politicians giving speeches that they never gave. And there are other researchers working on algorithms that can generate video from still images, like this guy. Sure, my name is Hamid Pirsiavash. I am an assistant professor at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Hamid and his team are working with researchers at MIT to figure out how to generate video using an algorithm. We have an artificial intelligence algorithm, which is basically a deep learning algorithm. And what it does is it is producing a video which doesn't exist, but it's trying to make the video as close as possible to a natural video. Basically, when a person is looking at the video, the person cannot tell if this is uh, a natural video or computer generated. Here's how it works. First, the algorithm has to learn. And to teach it, the team fed the system two million unlabeled videos. That's about two years' worth of video material. Then they set up two different neural networks, and those two networks were basically competing with one another. One of the networks would generate videos, and the other one would try to determine whether those generated videos were real or fake. So what is happening is that there is a competition between these two. It's like a game. That one of them is pushing to do the task, the other one is pushing to generate outputs that the second one cannot do the task well. So the researchers would take an image, feed that image to algorithm number one, and ask it to generate the next few seconds of video. Then algorithm number two would watch that generated video and try to decide. Wow, that looks fake. Or, yeah, that looks good to me. The idea here is that having an actual human watch all of the videos that a machine puts out to see if they are realistic would take a ton of time and money. So this system allows them to train a machine to make better and better videos much faster using another machine. I will post some images of what they've been able to make so far on FlashForwardPod.com. But let's just be clear that right now these videos are not realistic. Some of them, you can kind of see what the algorithm is going for. Like there's this one of a train going past a station where you're like, yeah, you know, that's that's OK. I can kind of see like maybe if you were really drunk, that's what it would look like. But some of them are incredibly creepy. They have one where they ask the computer to generate a baby, like the face of a baby. And it is terrifying. And in part, that's because humans are really hard to model because we're so wiggly. So human is not a rigid body, right? Human can bend, you know what I mean? Like, it's a flexible body, right? So the motion of a human is much more complicated compared to motion of a train. We know that train can move only along the tracks, right? And it is very rigid. It, does, it doesn't have legs, it doesn't have arms. It's just the box that is moving. But it is not the case for humans. So humans have a lot of different mo types of motion. Like the skeleton of a human can move in many different directions, and handling that is much more difficult. It's also hard because humans are much better at picking out fake humans than we are at picking out fake trains. Human brain is very sensitive to humans. We have learned a lot of things about the human face, human uh, bodies, and all this, because we have seen a lot of them around us, and those are very important things that human brain needed to process. So that's why human is very sensitive to irregularities on those ones. Even if you see a person walking, if he doesn't walk perfectly, 
your brain is going to catch it very easily. If the gait of the person is not perfect, you're going to realize something is wrong here. But it may not be the case for animals, or it might be the case if the train doesn't move perfectly. This happens actually much deeper in human face particularly. So if you look at the human face, if you move a, couple, a few pixels, like a little patch on the human face, it is very obvious for the human that this is not a perfect face. It is manipulated. Generating a face is not actually very easy. Maybe that's what makes the baby ones so creepy. Exactly, exactly. If you look <laughs> at the baby ones, there is, no, there is no way that you can say this is natural. So because it was, comp I mean, it's really difficult to generate such videos. And right now, the videos that they can generate are really small. But they're also making swift progress. In the end, in theory at least, you could feed a particular algorithm an image and it could generate the next several seconds of incredibly convincing video for you. These teams are also experimenting with giving an algorithm a foreground and a background to use to put two different images together into one video. And this is something that movies have done a different way for a really long time. Things like Gollum are pretty advanced CGI. This is Hal Hodson. He's a tech reporter at The Economist. And that's actually the way that they did the um, Moff Tarkin face in the new Star Wars was exactly the same tech as they used to put Gollum's face on Andy Serkis but just with a human face instead of a column face. And the movie business is definitely interested in these generative video techniques. But the idea is that they can generate exactly what you want. So instead of this kind of slightly uncanny-ness that we get when we look at Tarkin or Leia in the new movies or you know a lot of other CGI, these, these generative tools would be able to build something that doesn't have that. Um, but it's sort of yet to be seen whether they're gonna work. Once this technology can go from rooms to people, it could totally change the movie business. If you can cast Marilyn Monroe in any movie now because you can just generate her, I mean, that totally changes things. One thing that I've been thinking about a lot is what happens to actors' identities, because that's kind of like the ultimate identity. Like, that's the ultimate personal brand is if you're a famous actor. If this exists and you can totally capture your own data and propagate yourself into other roles, then I've been thinking, like, doesn't that mean that you can massively grow the extent of your influence over both space? So, you know, you wouldn't necessarily just be famous in the U.S. You could you could sell your face to China and they could make Chinese market movies using your famous face. But not just space, but also in time, you could also sell yourself into the future so that future people can watch new movies made for them and their time with, you know, John Wayne's face on them. I wonder if then you have two tiers of movies where you have real, quote unquote, real movies where mm -hmm. like the real actors are there. I wonder even if there's like different categories in awards shows, a real actor doing a real thing, doing a new thing. Maybe that's mm -hmm. like more valuable or feels more authentic, quote unquote, yeah. or like maybe just film snobs are like, oh, no, it's better if it's on real to real and, and with real humans instead of like yeah. generative people. But, but I think that offers a lens to think about how you would do verification in this weird world where everything is everything and nothing is real. And I'm pretty, you know, those films would need some kind of kite mark or verification strategy to say someone who's been like, yes, I've been I've been following this shoot for the whole time. And all of the scenes in this movie were shot with, you know, 100 percent grade A human flesh. Um, <laughs> and because otherwise, how would you, you know, if we assume that they're going to get to the point where you couldn't really know, then how would you know? Not just human flesh, but the, the identity in question. You know, I, I've been to their trailer. I have asked them if they like coffee. And, you know, I, I am highly confident that, you know, 
whoever George Clooney really was in this movie. I can see that also being like a huge scandal, you know, like a Russian doping scandal. Where it's... <laughs> well, and cue like a thousand think pieces about why it doesn't really matter, man. And like it's all, everything's <laughs> relative. And, you know, if you enjoyed it, that's all that counts. This all got me thinking about this movie production company called The Asylum. And their whole business model is making rip-off movies of big blockbusters. And they give these rip-offs really similar names, essentially hoping that people in Blockbuster or online will get confused and accidentally rent or buy their movie instead of the actual blockbuster that they're looking for. So when the big movie War of the Worlds came out, The Asylum made a movie called H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. When The Da Vinci Code came out, they made The Da Vinci Treasure. When one of the Pirates of the Caribbean came out, they made Pirates of Treasure Island. And my very favorite, they released a movie called Snakes on a Train two days before Snakes on a Plane hit theaters. Anyway, I bring all of this up because The Asylum is probably going to have a field day with this technology. Now, instead of actually hiring actors to make these so-called mockbusters, they can just computer-generate them. And they can even make their computer-generated characters look ever so slightly like the actors in the actual films that they are ripping off. So companies are ready to exploit this, and so are scam artists, who of course have been faking stuff like this for a long time. You have probably been fooled by a fake viral video on YouTube already. But I also want to tell you about this fake piece of media that goes way back before YouTube or even really the internet. In 1982, the British were fighting a war with Argentina in the Falkland Islands. And Margaret Thatcher is the prime minister of England at the time. And that was a point at which she was really unpopular. Then in May of 1982, the Argentinians sank a British ship called the HMS Sheffield, killing 20 people on board. Thatcher responded really quickly, and many people believe that that swift response is actually what won her re-election the next year in 1983. But just after that election, a tape surfaced that cast some serious doubt onto Thatcher's decisions in the Falklands and her re-election. The tape seemed to be of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan on the phone, talking to each other. And in the tape, it seems like Thatcher is implying to Reagan that she actually sacrificed the HMS Sheffield for political gain, to escalate the Falklands War and have an excuse to really step in, which is a huge accusation. It turns out, though, that the tape was fake. It was, in fact, a series of clips from various Thatcher and Reagan speeches, spliced together to make it sound like a conversation. Once they figured out that the tape was fake, people thought that maybe the Argentinians or even the KGB were responsible. But it turns out that it was actually created by an anarchist punk band called Crass. So this is all to say that fake tapes have been around for a long time, and they've already almost caused at least one international crisis. Fake video will likely be a whole other level of chaos, which has really interesting implications for journalism, right? A few episodes ago, we took on the question of a future where nobody trusts the news. And here we are again. If you can make a video of anybody doing anything, that could totally wreak havoc on the news cycle. People already get fooled all the time by fake images online, including journalists. Fake video is certain to be the same way. So how will journalists vet and confirm videos? If a video pops up from someone that depicts a politician doing something, how do you tell if it's real? I think that the answer is that a lot of people won't be able to. I think it might make people start asking the kinds of questions that journalists ask about these media things. Like, you know, all those threads where 
like the one of the giant jellyfish and a scuba diver swimming along next to it that go viral and everyone's like, wow, this is the coolest thing ever. And then, it, and then, you know, just someone, some, you know, I think with this one, it was a science journalist says like, I don't think the jellyfish get that big. I think that we would all be better off if everybody kind of asked those questions, but probably there'll be a horrible transition phase where everything sucks and um, people get fired because people make fake things of them. That's probably already happening somewhere. If we have learned anything from the past year or so, it's that people are not good at determining what is real and what is fake. And when it comes to images and videos, that has real impact. There's a whole field of research out there about the ways that images and videos change people's memories. There's one study in particular about this that I find terrifying, honestly. In this study, researchers asked participants to come in and play a gambling game. Then these same participants are called back for the second part of the experiment. Before they're brought into the room to play again, they're actually pulled aside and showed doctored footage of their partner cheating at this gambling game. Now, the partner did not cheat. The video is completely fabricated. So the subject here could not have seen this person cheat. But even though there was no way for them to have seen their partner cheating, 20% of the participants in the study were willing to sign a witness statement saying that they had. And even after they were told that the footage was doctored, some participants refused to relent. They really believed that they saw something that never happened because they had been shown the footage. So to prevent that from happening, news outlets need to vet their stuff. But how? I mean, can they even do that? If generative video does become a really big thing and anybody can just click a few buttons and generate a, you know, an embarrassing video of you, um, hashtag, then the government might start using like, you know, or official channels might start using higher resolutions, um, you know, more immersive content, like, you know, maybe all official government degrees come out in VR that can't be generated yet. Maybe there becomes this arm race between, you know, technological truthiness and our skepticism. Or maybe there's some kind of law that says that fake videos have to have some kind of marker or indication that they are fake. So... Here's kind of a weird analogy. In the 1870s, margarine arrives in America from Europe. Yes, we are now talking about butter substitutes and not high-tech video. Stick with me here. I promise there's a payoff. So margarine shows up in America. Dairy farmers are extremely worried about this because margarine is cheaper than butter. And this results in this huge battle between dairy farmers and margarine manufacturers. And a lot of the fight is centered around the fact that the average consumer might not actually realize the difference between real butter and fake butter. And the margarine makers know this. I mean, they would actually dye their product that classic yellow butter color. So if you didn't realize that margarine was a thing or you didn't read the packaging carefully, you might actually buy fake butter thinking it was real butter. So the solution that the dairy lobby came up with to combat this fake butter and the potential consumer confusion was to push laws that said that margarine could not be dyed yellow. By 1902, 32 states had rules about what color margarine could be. In Vermont, New Hampshire, and South Dakota, there were laws saying that margarine had to be dyed pink. Other states opted for red, brown, or even black. Can you imagine buying black butter? That sounds awful. 
The margarine color laws actually stuck around for way longer than I realized. Wisconsin only repealed its margarine color law in 1967. So maybe we have fake video color laws. See, I told you I would bring it back. Maybe these fake videos have to be dyed pink or have some kind of watermark on them. Or maybe they have little pixels embedded in them that are invisible to the naked eye but can be detected by video verification software. You could imagine video broadcasts being like I don't know, signed by the government's public key using cryptography to make sure that video is verifiable. Of course, videos aren't margarine, which is not something I ever thought that I would say. But managing an endless stream of fake videos is way harder than managing margarine production. Videos spread across the web way faster than any truck of fake butter can move, and it's way harder to enforce rules about online video than it is to enforce rules about food color. Even if there was a rule about pixels or encryption, it might not matter. Even today, there are tons of fake images that are very obviously fake and easy to fact check that I see reputable journalists sharing. Journalists, stop it! All of those cheeky London tube signs are fake! Ah! Maybe now's a good time to take a break and I'm going to calm down. When we come back, we're going to talk about the legal side of all of this. Can you sue someone for making a video of you like this? And how does this change our sense of identity in the future? That and more in a second. But first, a word from our sponsors. So in this future, you can create a video of anybody doing anything. And I will admit that my first instinct was to think, oh my God, revenge porn. So this next bit of the episode has some adult stuff in it. So if you are listening with little kiddos that you don't want to hear about some pretty gross revenge porn, now is the time to turn it off. You gone? Okay. So like I was saying, my first thought when I heard about this kind of technology was to think about the ways that it could be used against people. I mean, if you could really make a video of anybody doing anything, You know there would be people making videos of politicians and all kinds of sex acts, or making videos of their ex-girlfriends doing drugs or having sex with people, or making videos of their bosses killing puppies, or something like that. And to talk us through the legal side of this kind of thing, I called Carrie Goldberg. I run a law firm in Brooklyn, and we focus on victims of online harassment, sexual assault, and blackmail. I got into this because I was um, somebody's target myself and had difficulty finding a lawyer to to help me. And um, I became the lawyer that I really needed. Carrie has represented people in all kinds of cases that fall under a phenomenon called revenge porn or non-consensual porn. Even if you don't know someone who's been targeted personally, you've probably heard about celebrity cases where nude photos of actresses like Emma Watson and Jennifer Lawrence are leaked to the internet. And in the past few years, a lot of states have actually adopted revenge porn laws to try and deal with these kinds of cases. We now have 35 states that have non-consensual porn laws. We have a federal bill that's that's, um, also being introduced. And then all states have video voyeurism laws, defamation laws, and um, there's a growing trend toward e-personation laws. So revenge porn is something people are dealing with already. And in fact, even today, some of those cases involve faked photos. One thing Carrie constantly tries to explain to people is that it doesn't actually matter if you've never taken a nude photo in your life. You are still vulnerable to this kind of attack, even without fancy computer-generated graphics. Whenever I give a talk or um, come across somebody who doesn't really understand what I do, 
they always say something like, oh, well, you know, I just tell everyone not to take nude pictures in the first place. And there's a smugness that, that goes along with that because people, you know, wrongly think that it could never happen to them. They could never be the victim of, of non-consensual pornography if they just don't take naked pictures. Um, however, I have lots of cases where someone's head is photoshopped onto a body or they never consented to the picture in the first place. There was video voyeurism. And in fact, you don't even need to generate nude photos for online impersonation to work and to be really scary. One of Carrie's clients had an ex post a fake profile of him on a gay dating site called Grinder. And over a thousand people have come to his home and his workplace expecting to have sex with him. And the profiles are very, very crude, um, you know, saying things like, my client's on all fours with his ass lubed waiting to be pounded. And we're real, really very, very frustrated by the, um, the app's refusal to intervene and their claim that they don't have the, the technology to forbid people from using their, their site. Carrie has also represented people who have had their faces photoshopped onto porn stars' bodies or people who've had their videos spliced together with a porn star's video. You know, I had an interesting case a while ago where the, the client resembled a porn star. And so the offender had videos of the client and then interspersed the videos of the client with the porn star in, engaging in sexual acts and then sent those around to the, to the, um, the client's friends and families and coworkers. So this kind of stuff is already happening, even without a computer that can generate any video you want. But in this future, where you have fully computer-generated video, the legal recourse you have as a victim is actually different than what people do now. Right now, the most effective way to get revenge porn taken down is by leveraging this thing called the DMCA. It's, it stands for the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, and it's one of the few laws that is really taken seriously um, by websites all over the country and internationally. And it relates to um, situations where somebody's image is on a website and the website is infringing on, um, on, on the copyright. We use it a lot to take down, to get uh, removal of, of like revenge porn. Um, our client, it might, you know, if it's a selfie, then our client owns the copyright. And so we can notify the website and say that there's been a copyright violation. And if the website refuses to honor that takedown notice, then we can actually sue them for copyright infringement. It's kind of ridiculous and sad, but most sites don't actually care if someone is posting private photos to get revenge on you. But they do care about violating copyright law. But in this future we're talking about, since this video is being generated by an algorithm or a computer, copyright claims won't work. The copyright would probably be be owned by the the person who created the the video. I think this is a pretty brilliant workaround of the non-consensual porn laws. They're just not they're not designed for fake images or fake situations. Instead, people would probably have to turn to libel and defamation laws. So, let's say, yeah, I want to, you know, use a picture and create a generative video of um, XYZ giving Donald Trump a blowjob. If that never happened, then I really do think that that defamation laws would apply. But here is a key difference. In the United States, defamation cases are civil suits, not criminal suits. 
which is a huge distinction. Defamation is a civil action. So it would be, you know, the, the harmed person versus the offender. The 35 states that have revenge porn laws, those are criminal actions. And so it's the state or the, or in some cases, you know, if we get the federal law passed, the, the United States versus the offender. And it's up to prosecutors and, and law enforcement to work through those, those cases. Defamation is never going to be a criminal matter. So it's always going to be up to the victim to raise it. Which means that a defamation case is way more expensive for the victim than a revenge porn case. Lawyers are expensive. And unless, there's, unless the, the offender has money, then lawyers are not going to be taking it on contingency. But regardless of what kind of court the victims are in to seek justice, the results of revenge porn, computer-generated or otherwise, are the same. The results would be exactly the same. I mean, a person would be equally humiliated and attacked on the Internet. And, you know, if these were to show up on the Internet, they're just as likely to go viral. They're just as likely to impact the person's uh, search engine results. They're just as likely to be sent around to all of her friends and family in an act of vengeance. And even if it's not real and they know it, you can't unsee something. So if you, you know, if you see somebody engaging in some sort of sexual act, you might know that they never did that, but, but you still have that image in your head. One of the things that I'm really interested in in this future is how it syncs up with the ways that our online identities have changed over time. It used to be that having a profile online was kind of a fun thing to do, but it wasn't crucial to work or relationships. Today, in a lot of industries, you kind of have to have an online profile of some kind, whether it's LinkedIn or Twitter or whatever it is. In fact, there is currently a case in front of the Supreme Court here in the U.S. that considers whether or not access to Facebook is a constitutional right. The case looks at a law in North Carolina that bars sex offenders from accessing websites like Facebook and YouTube. The lawyers involved here argue that not allowing someone access to those sites violates their constitutional rights. In their initial argument, the justices pointed out that not having access to a site like LinkedIn has serious professional consequences for people. And without access to Twitter, citizens miss out on statements by their elected representatives. Being part of these online communities isn't just a fun luxury for people anymore. It's how they get jobs and communicate with potential employers. It's how they meet new people, talk to their representatives, and hear about local news. Well, I talk about that all the time, about just the the value, the monetary value of our our online identities. And there really is no, no like, line of demarcation between our online selves and our offline selves. I mean, I would never hire somebody or go on a date with somebody if I didn't, like, look them up online. I mean, I'm renting out my apartment right now, and I won't even let anybody look at it and, until I've done a Google search on them. And it's, it's basically like the big validator. You know, if, if you meet anybody, they're going to look you up online. If there's videos, fake videos of you killing puppies, then even if somebody's like, oh, that's clearly fake, they at least know, oh, well, this is a, somebody who, who is a high drama person because, you know, there's somebody who, who hates her enough to make this video. So for a lot of people, online identity is incredibly valuable. I would argue more valuable than it has ever been. So in this future where anybody can make a video of anybody else doing anything they want, what does that do to the value of that identity? I mean, I think online identities have become, you know, they've become this really interesting form of, of currency. I mean, it's the way you communicate your worth and it's the way you communicate who you are and what you have to offer. 
<laughs> this is Jenna Wortham, a staff writer for The New York Times Magazine and co-host of an amazing podcast called Still Processing. And Jenna is probably the best writer and thinker I know about our online lives. But I, I think we've gotten to the point where we use all the different facets of the way we, we present ourselves online to relay what's interesting about us as people and our aesthetic and why you'd want to get to know us or date us or hire us. So we've, we've come to use them as calling cards, which is a really basic way of just saying that they already exist as avatars for who we think we are or how we want to market ourselves. And in some ways, the ability to create these videos might play into that very facade that people are putting up. If you want to be the kind of person who does yoga in Bali, you can simply make a video of yourself doing yoga in Bali. And we might not know it's not real. It will. It would definitely go both ways. But I also think, too, that that type of technology has the power to really expose our notion of authenticity anyway, because the truth is whenever you're, whenever you're making an image of yourself or you're presenting something about yourself and putting it online, it's still mediated. It's still being filtered through a lens. So it's, it's never really authentic. I think we've already seen some of that happen when there have been those CGI apps that have come out where people can use their, use images of their face and then put themselves into little cartoon avatars that dance and do funny things. Like I think people like to push the boundaries of, what they can do or they want to imagine themselves. Like I was thinking about it in terms of just entertainment, like how fun it would be to be like, I've always wanted to go surfing. So what does it look like if I made a video of myself surfing? I want one of those cool GoPro, you know, GoPro on the surfboard type videos of myself popping up and surfing on a cool wave in Hawaii. I've always wanted that. So I was, I was thinking it could be really fun. Like we would see this whole new genre of fan fiction emerge. And I, I got really excited about the possibilities and creativity uh, emerging. But it is interesting to be like, how will we delineate between what's real and what's fake? And what happens to social media when you can't always tell what's fantasy and what's reality? And how, I, I mean, to me, I feel like it's very exciting because we already are blurring that line anyway. <laughs> so to see it actually happen in reality would be really interesting and really disruptive. Um, in a way that I would find, like, so thrilling. So what happens in this world where anybody can totally pervert your online identity just like that? When you first sent me the info about this art, this episode that you were doing, the first thing I thought was, like, finally, we'll start to really value anonymity again. You know, like, because I think, I think for a little while there's been this idea that if you aren't online, then you must be hiding something. And then maybe we'll get to the point where the only way to, to be functional is to hide everything, which actually really excites me because I think we're we're at this really dangerous intersection where companies like Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn have convinced us that you, I mean, they've convinced all of us that in order to be seen as successful and viable, you have to have a presence on their platforms. I mean, it's really unusual to not have a LinkedIn or not even have a Facebook and still be seen as, you know, fluent or or in, in acquisition of the skills that are necessary to be functional in today's world, which is really clever. It's the ultimate mind trick. It's like, I don't know. I mean, and in a lot of ways, it's true, but it's also completely not true. And so there is something to me really interesting about getting to a point where we don't we don't have to have an online presence to be seen as functional or successful or popular. And I find that to be really, really tantalizing. There's this pushback happening online right now where people are starting to draw back, to pull away and try to get some of their privacy back. There is this thing happening right now where there is opacity has become very much a word of the moment. And there are a lot of discussions happening right now around what it means to be opaque, which I think is a stand in for mystery. I think it's a, it's a way in which we know their mystery is very um, highly fetishized and extremely valuable. I think, you know, we, we're interested in what we don't know. And, and there's so much about 
our social media climate that really pushes people to share everything that we, you know, see, we know so much about people and and the more people can be removed. It's just really interesting. But, but I've been seeing this word opacity emerge as the opposite or the polar opposite to transparency and it being as a, a highly prized quality. And there are real world equivalents to this, too, right? In our episode about facial recognition, we talked about a future where everybody wears bold, sparkly makeup to fool facial recognition algorithms. So, you know, I'm in L.A. for work and it's really bright here. So the sun is like very, very, very bright. And um, there was this woman walking around at this book fair and she had a hoodie that was unzipped. But you could see that there were these two big um, protected panels on the side of it. So basically she zips the whole thing up and it covers her face entirely, but she, but she can still see out. And I was thinking like, that's a really cool thing. You know, that's smart because it's so bright here and the lights reflecting off of the smog and you can protect your eyes and your skin and still see the world. But then I was also like, that's so wild because you're basically just in disguise all the time. And I couldn't, I was like watching this woman walk around this book fair and just thinking to myself, like, I wonder if that will be the trend where these, we have clothing or fashion or outerwear that evolves or designs that you can't be observed and can't be tracked that's working on a lot of levels and it's kind of ingenious and it looks amazing i was just very in awe so in response to some of this stuff you might wind up with people totally expunging themselves from the internet entirely like maybe there's instead of you know inbox zero it's like digital footprint zero it's like you can't there's not enough information about you online to make one of these videos and then that becoming the thing that's highly, highly, highly prioritized. Like, oh yeah, this person's never, you know, it'd be impossible for this person to ever even have make this kind of video because there isn't enough, there isn't enough data on them online. I've been trying to think about what I would do if someone decided to make a series of terrible videos of me. I could go with this sort of privacy option and just totally erase everything about me from the internet. But that would include this podcast. And I like doing this podcast. So I think the thing that I would actually do would be to use whatever generative video system is out there and make a ton of weird videos of myself. Just totally flood the internet with videos of me doing all sorts of weird, embarrassing stuff. Videos of me playing an iguana as a violin. Videos of me underwater with a school of fish that are actually tiny, naked eaters' elbows. And also maybe make a bunch of bad stuff. I mean, I can't possibly have a sex tape with every celebrity, right? But if they all existed on the internet and I just bombarded the world with tons of stuff that couldn't possibly be real but have my face on it, then maybe when someone sees a video of me, people are already primed to think, oh, that's probably one of those weird fake videos of Rose. I have no idea if this would work, but I would probably try it. Just the amount of confusion, it would just be so exhausting. It would be so exhausting. But also, like, maybe kind of liberating because you're like, well, guess I don't have to worry about that anymore. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> You're right. It's so true. You can be like, that's, you know, like you're going in for a job interview and they're like, we found these videos of you online. And you're like, oh, you know how it goes, though. Who knows when those were made? Who knows? You know, it's like you do have the ultimate um a trapdoor excuse for anything wild about you that gets posted online. It's like, it's all fake news. It's all fake. It's all fake persona. What would you make a video of yourself doing if you had this? Oh my God. I would do, I would, oh my gosh. I would probably like make a really cool video of myself on stage at a concert. Nothing, nothing like that. Nothing that wild or like, yes, yeah, surfing or skydiving. Um, I would just want to see myself in really strange and new landscapes. Like I, I think I would get a real kick out of that, putting myself, you know, just in really bizarre and unusual places. And I wouldn't, I don't think I would use it at all to try to create an image of myself that wasn't grounded in reality. I think it would just be really fun just from a personal 
or an artistic standpoint, just to be like, I don't know, like, like, what would it be like if I scaled a building or like broke into a bank or I don't know, like, I would just want to have a lot of fun with it. And, And like, I would probably make like a YouTube video series of just like crazy Jenna adventures for entertainment and delight and just totally go ham. Yeah. It would be so fun. I was thinking about this and I was like trying to think. So I am afraid of birds. And I think I would try to use this to like get myself to not be afraid of birds. Like if there were, if I made all these videos of me hanging out with birds and everything's totally fine. Um, mm-hmm. It does feel like it could be super relaxing where it's like, here's a video of me just chill, <laughs> like not yeah. freaking out about something, you know? <laughs> and that is how you will know if a video of me is fake, everybody. If you see a video of me just like relaxing, like totally stress free, just hanging out. Just so you know, that video is definitely fake. That's all for this episode. Head to flashforwardpod.com to see links to stuff we talked about and examples of some computer-generated videos, including some really creepy baby GIFs. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Evelyn. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hasselonia. Special thanks this week to Wendy Hari, Jackie Sujiko, and Dan Tenenbaum. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. If you want to suggest a future we should take on, send us a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. I love hearing your ideas. Keep sending them. I never get tired of it. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in this episode, email me there too. If you are right, I will send you something cool. And if you want to support the show, there are a few ways you can do that. You can go to flashforwardpod.com support, and it has a whole list of ways that you can help. Okay, see you in the future.